One more while you're at it. Come on. Thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, that's enough of that. <laughs> Hi, everybody. It's good to see you. I, so this is the second week of Big House, right? I am still just as excited to be here as I was the first week. I, the more I thought about, about it as we, this week started happening, and I was like, Big House is happening again, and it was raining today, and I just seriously love just being here and hanging out and worshiping together and listening to teachings together. Um, now, that being said, it's been a while since I've been up on stage and actually talked to you all, and so there's a lot of new faces in the room, and I think it's been even like since last March when I gave a talk last. So it's been a little bit, so I feel like there's just a little bit of recap I can do. So my name is Dan Hopple. Um, I actually work here full-time at Orchard Hill Church, part-time with the worship ministry, and part-time with high school, big house as well. <clears throat> um, and actually, for me, last July, July 10th, I got married to my incredible wife, Abby. I brought a picture from the day. That was, that was us over by the dog park. Um, Elliot and his wife actually took our pictures, so... This one wasn't staged at all, but he had some pretty great ones. So thanks, Elliot. <clears throat> um, but so needless to say, the last few months have been quite a whirlwind of a lot of awesome and fun, exciting experiences, but a lot of kind of bummers, too. So I think that's why it feels so good to be back to something that's familiar. I'm just so excited to be here. And so tonight, we're continuing this series, the first series of this year called Who is God? And last week, Nikki opened off the series and taught about how God is love. And so tonight, we're going to continue the series with God is Redemption. And so when I was planning for this talk, I was struggling to figure out how to even start and how to go about this. And so naturally what I do when I'm struggling to think of something, I just Googled the word redemption and tried to find the definition and a couple different things. And so on that little rabbit hole journey, I came across an article that said the word redeem and its various forms, such as redemption, redeemer, etc., are found in the Bible over 100 times. 100 times. Now, I know the Bible's pretty big, but having one word used that many times in the Bible has to make it important, right? So the article had my attention, and I kept reading. And after that, I found that the original transcripts of the Bible not only use the word redeem this often, but there are actually different ways the word redeem was used. There are multiple words in the original transcripts that when they're transcribed, all mean redeem. So let me give you some examples. One would be a word used for redeem meant to buy or purchase something. So like in the concept used in the Bible, it was the purchase of a slave. So someone is bought to be owned as property. Or another word means to buy something from someone for a completely different purpose. And the th a third one, a third word for redeem carries the idea of a purchase that pays off a debt. And I put up a, a slide up here. A price that is necessary to secure the freedom of someone or something. <clears throat> now this third translation of redemption is what I want to talk about and focus on tonight. And when looking at that definition, a price that is necessary to secure the freedom of someone or something, it sounds pretty straightforward, right? It's fair. I mean, it fits in perfectly with our capitalistic society, right? I mean, if I owe someone something, if I'm in debt to someone, I pay a price, and that debt is redeemed. However, the way it's used in the context of the Bible doesn't make sense with how the definition that I just described is. I mean, so if I owe a debt, I pay it back. Simple as that, right? Hands clean, that's it. Well, the debt in the Bible 
is our sin. And that's something we can't pay back. And the price that is ultimately paid for that debt is Jesus' life. And the kicker is that we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, and simply put, it just doesn't make any sense why Jesus would do what he did, why he would pay that debt, gaining seemingly nothing, right? Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time in the Bible here, so if you brought your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Luke 19, or if you have your phone, feel free to go ahead and pull up like the Bible app or something, but I do have some slides as well from Luke 19 and all the verses that I'm going to be covering, so it's the story of Zacchaeus. Um, I'll give just a little bit more time for people to pull it up on their phones. I feel like that's just the, the common place to do it. Oh, I see some Bibles. Nice. Anyways, in Luke 19, it starts and says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So Jesus wasn't planning on staying, wasn't planning on having a meal, wasn't planning on spending the night. It's just passing through. And a man was there by the name Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was very wealthy. So now, the reason that Zacchaeus was very wealthy was because he was this chief tax collector. And as a chief, chief tax collector back in that time, Zacchaeus had gained the right from Rome, most likely by purchasing it, to collect taxes for Rome. And as a chief tax collector, he was then able to basically create this pyramid scheme of tax collecting, where he was on top and he hired a couple more tax collectors. And they went out and hired a couple more, and they hired a couple more, and so on and so forth, until there was this massive pyramid of tax collectors with Zacchaeus on top. And so all these tax collectors would go around the land and just collect taxes from people for Rome, right? So they would set up shops in the cities and pay taxes, get taxes for food or clothes or t transportation or all sorts of stuff. And ultimately, these taxes would find their way all the way back up and funnel all the way to the top back to Zacchaeus. And his job was to then get all these taxes, all this money, and give back to Rome what Rome was owed, the taxes that they needed from the people. And if Zacchaeus did this, that simple task of giving what, what Rome was owed, they would look the other way when him and his other tax collector buddies skimmed some off the top or had surcharges or fined extra people extra money and just kept it for themselves. Because Rome got what they wanted. Who cared what Zacchaeus did? So naturally, every single person hated him. And he was wealthy at everyone's expense. And so, I mean, you hear your parents and relatives and stuff talk about how much they hate taxes and the government's even all that stuff. Well, thankfully today, there's a little bit more of regulations as far as taxes go than back then. So everybody knew Zacchaeus, and they all hated him. Now, picking it back up in verse 3, he, Zacchaeus, wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your home today. So he came down from the tree and at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. By the way, do, do any of you remember that old song from like Sunday school? The Zacchaeus was a wee little and a wee little man was he. He climbed up Sycamore, yeah, look at you guys go, nice. I actually asked Bradley earlier if he would play that for the band, but they said no, so don't worry, we don't have to sing that. Um, it's not that great of a song anyways. No, but what I want to make sure you understand is not that song, it's actually the context of what's happening. So this isn't in the text, but here's what I imagine going on, right? So Jesus gets to this spot, he's just walking through the crowd, passing through Jericho, and he sees this man just in a tree, 
And so he calls out this guy by name. So Jesus knows who he is already. And then this crowd who came to see Jesus notices Zacchaeus in the tree as well. And I can just imagine this hush falling on the crowd, right? They all know who he is. And they're probably thinking, finally, finally someone's going to put a stop to Zacchaeus. They're going to put him in his place. Finally, someone has the courage to face this guy down. So they all just spread out and leave this nice trail for Zacchaeus' walk of shame to Jesus, right? The entire town is just watching him. Talk about awkward. I mean, a crowd of people who don't like you watch you shimmy down a tree and sulk towards Jesus. And you're already a little bit shorter than them all, too. So everyone knows that this guy's in for it. And then Jesus shocks everyone, and he asks to stay at this guy's home. <laughs> what? Zacchaeus? That's not how it's supposed to work. I mean, these people got here early to see Jesus. They got spots on the curb. They brought lawn chairs and signs. They were ready with their bags for all the candy. I mean, they didn't even get to meet him. And Zacchaeus, the traitor and outcast of the city, gets to go eat dinner with him at his home? Talk about unexpected and confusing and backwards. I mean, they couldn't understand why Jesus would do that. The Jesus they had gotten up so early to go sit on the street for he wasn't supposed to eat with sinners. This wasn't how Jesus, how the Jesus they knew was supposed to act. And so now, taking a step back from the story, <clears throat> as I thought about this a lot, I, I thought of a couple things, and one of them was that I realized that, well, I wasn't born in this century, right? So I have a little bit of knowledge and wisdom and just experience that only age can bring, right? So I'm really not that much older than you guys, just so you know. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, but the one thing that I have learned from my childhood growing up, thanks, Kate, was that if there's something you don't understand, you're confused by, and you want to just, you want to feel like you have a little bit more of a grasp on it, you grab a magic eight ball. <clears throat> so bear with me. Oh, magic eight ball, why did Jesus die for us? Ask again. Oh, yes or no questions, that's right. Okay. Oh, magic eight ball, um, did Jesus die for me? Most likely. Okay. Uh, well, that's good enough, right? Um, let's try this one more time. Um, Magic 8 Paul, is this teaching going poorly? Very doubtful. Okay, I'll take that one. Um, <laughs> a better teacher wouldn't have done that for so long, but that's what I have. So... The funny thing is, is this one isn't even mine, though. I actually asked Nikki a little bit ago if I could borrow an eight ball, because I thought of this when I was a kid. I remember watching the Toy Story movie. Remember that original movie? When Andy gets told by his mom that he gets to go to Pizza Planet, but he can only take one toy. And Woody hears this, and so he's upset because he knows he's going to pick Buzz. He takes a magic eight ball and, and asks it if Andy's going to pick him, and it says, very doubtful, and he just gets mad. And ever since I saw that, I always wanted one of those. So I'd constantly ask my mom, and she would just always say no. And she would always say something along the lines of, Dan, you've got to think for yourself, or Dan, the Bible already has all the answers, you know, like a classic mom. And I think back on, on these things now, right, these toys, and I totally understand the appeal. I totally understand why I wanted one so badly. You see, I, I think as people, we have this need to understand things, especially when we're growing up and just being so influenced by all this stuff around us. We always want to be right. We, we need to know that we're on the inside and we don't feel like an outsider. We need to feel like we're in control of things and that we know what's going to happen and that we know that however way it's going is the way it's supposed to go. And so whether my mom knew it or not, I think she was onto something because as Christians or Jesus followers, 
When life gets hard, when we see so much despair or anger and division in the world around us, we look to the Bible for answers, right? I mean, that's where they are. It's the Word of God. But I think sometimes it can be dangerous for us because we might treat the Bible exactly like I just treated this eight ball. You see, I, I see people arguing on Facebook all the time. And they, they're trying to make a point, and so they just spout off a Bible verse or two just to feel superior or make a, make a moral argument against this person. Or, or somebody that you care for is going through a really tough time, or you, and you just don't quite understand how they feel, and you don't know how to grasp it or help out. So you, you send a Bible verse their way with a get well card that talks about hope or love. And I mean, I think back to the days when I was a kid in my youth groups, and I'd show up week after week, having memorized one more Bible verse every single week, one more line on the Apostles' Creed, just to get an extra pin, or to feel better than my, my friends in the group as well. And then as I got older, often when I felt like I wasn't in control, or that I needed desperately to understand why something was happening, I would take my holy eight-ball Bible, and I'd give it a shake and pick out a verse that helped me feel better or fit my situation I was in. And now, I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying that I'm extremely clear because memorizing Bible verses, writing them down, keeping them in your wallet, putting them on a mirror, wherever you do with, put them in whatever you do is not bad and it's not wrong. And in fact, I would argue that it's great to have verses to hold on to, to have them memorized, to just know. I feel like they can help redirect our attention in times of need and when, when we just need to focus on Jesus or what really matters. So I'm not saying that. Don't hear that. But I'm trying to make the point that Jesus didn't always give straight answers. It wasn't always easy to understand, and Jesus honestly rarely did what people expected of him. Oftentimes, the answers, such as what we see in this story of Zacchaeus, the answers to the questions that people needed to know the answers to didn't make sense to them. They had no clue what Jesus was doing. And we'll pick it up back in verse 7 here. It says, All the people who saw this began to mother. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. A man like Zacchaeus, who his whole adult life uses power, and authority to steal from those less fortunate than him. A man who was so materially wealthy, like, get this, he was so material wealthy that he had enough money to give away half of his earthly possessions and still pay back every single person he stole money from four times over. <laughs> Zacchaeus was set for life. The Jericho Jeff Bezos. And then, one personal encounter on a day when he just wanted to see this guy that was passing through, one personal encounter with Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, changed his life forever. It redeems his life. And so we look back at that third definition I brought up, a price that is necessary to secure the freedom of someone or something. This type of redemption, redemption from Jesus, only works one way, and that's through his grace. It's undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor towards you. And you see, this story was unsettling for early Christians. It was unsettling for the people who were there at that day, who were coming to see Jesus in person. And it's unsettling to us to a degree with which we understand the context of the story, right? Because 
they and we don't necessarily always fully understand the kingdom of God, or that the way God sees the world, or that the way God sees us, he sees you and me. So before I invite the band up and pray, and I just want to make this last point, that we can't begin to understand or know the redemption of God in our lives or the world around us or how God is working truly in that without the presence of God as well. God's redemption in our lives doesn't make sense. And as followers of Jesus in the Bible, and certainly today, we long to know the why behind what God's doing. But many things he did in the Bible didn't make sense to the people at the time. And many of the things he's doing now don't make sense to us either. <clears throat> but when redemption and when grace stopped being just a word to Zacchaeus, when it stopped being just this definition on a paper, when redemption and grace walked with Zacchaeus and spent an evening with him, when Zacchaeus had an encounter and a relationship with Jesus, everything in his life changed. Zacchaeus, simply curious to see a man called Jesus, climbed a tree to get a better view. What's a step that maybe we can take to get a little bit closer to him as well? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for this space tonight and for the opportunity for us to come together and experience your presence. Father, I thank you for what you have done and what you're continuing to do for each of us every day. Even when we don't understand God, help us to remember that we're not in new territory. God, I ask that as we move into a time of musical worship and on with our lives and the rest of the week, that you give us the courage to step out of the crowd. God, that we can climb a tree, take one step towards you every day, and Father, like Zacchaeus, maybe give us the curiosity to experience your presence deeper.